0: Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of us, that will be on page 984. And church, we will stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Colossians 2, chapter 6, verse 16 through 23. If you are new to the churchy things, the chapter is the big number there and the Smaller numbers are the verses. I don't want you to feel lost at all, and I don't say that in a way to to demean you, but I want you to be able to follow with us because everything that we get here comes from God's Word. This is what we feast on together as a church. So, Colossians 2, verse 16 and following. This is God's Word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But there is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You may be seated. Last week, I, I told you that, that this bit of chapter 2 Here, Paul first gives us instruction on who we are in Christ, and we saw that last week. And then he gives us this warning not to add anything to our identity in Jesus Christ. So what what we know from Paul's letter to this church is that there were people in the Colossian church who were, I don't know how to say it, but they were intimidating the Colossians. And they're trying to convince them that they needed to add to what they had in Christ in order to be accepted by God. Look at at the things, if if you just look at our passage this morning, look at the things these false teachers were pressing onto this church. In verse 16, we see that the Colossians Christians are being judged because they weren't obeying these particular food laws. They probably ate meat that would have been unacceptable to, to Jews, and they were drinking wine. They are also being looked down on because they didn't celebrate the, the Old Testament festivals. Or, and they didn't observe the new moon days, the calendar, and celebrate every new moon. And they worshipped on Sunday instead of on Saturday. But if Christ is our Passover lamb and Christ is our Sabbath rest, and Christ is the beginning of this new creation, and if all foods are made clean in Christ, then Paul says all of those traditions that our forefathers held, those those were just a shadow. Christ fulfilled all of them. Christ is the substance. And then in verse 18, we see that these, these false teachers were saying, the Colossian Christians we were going to be disqualified. What does Paul mean by that? They were going to lose their salvation. If in addition to these traditions that had already been fulfilled in Christ, that they weren't also committed to these, what Paul calls, ascetic practices. Do you know that word, ascetic, asceticism? It's a word that means denying all pleasures of the flesh so that the flesh would never be gratified. It means submitting yourself to lots and lots of rules in order to ensure that you never accidentally enjoy anything and and allow the flesh to actually feel the pleasure that it was given, it was created to feel. So, So if that doesn't help, think of a monk who moves out to the desert and he lives in a cave and he only eats whatever wild grains he can find and insects, and he drinks mildly salty, lukewarm water that he digs up. That is, that's the extreme of asceticism. It's a new word for you, for me as well today. The idea is that if we can suppress the flesh's power over us, if we can keep the flesh from enjoying anything, then we'll suppress its power over us, And then we can be that much closer to God. Do you kind of see the logic behind that? It's a worldly logic. And then they say, these false teachers are saying that that closeness to God was was supposedly heightened or it was proved to be true. Because they were the ones experiencing these visions. They were the ones experiencing these these angelic visions and these communication with, with angels. The false teachers in their church, wanted to prove to the Colossians, to the Christians there, that it was this rule keeping. It was this asceticism that empowered those those supernatural experiences that they were having or that they said that they were having. And so they were trying to show that they were the ones who were actually closer to God. They were closer to the divine What were they saying? They were saying that Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus gives you some benefits, and you'll get those from God, but Jesus is more of a a gateway. He's the entryway, and in order to get to the next level, you have to add to what he's done. You have to add these special rituals and these special practices. You see the danger? I hope you you see the danger in that. We're going to talk more in a minute, minute about what this might look like today because we don't have a lot. There are some churches that actually do teach this false teaching, but not many of us are exposed to that. But think about what's going on there. Paul's teaching the Colossians, this is the foundation for what he's taught them. You have all of the fellowship you need with God in Jesus Christ. In Christ You are already participating in the divine. You can't be filled with God any more than you already are. You can't be closer to God any more than you already are. Because remember, as we saw last week, they're in Christ. They, They are unified to Christ. And the false teachers are saying, actually, you don't have enough in Christ. You need to do more to get closer to God. So what Paul's response is what we see in today's text is that it's not these rules and traditions that bring us into right standing before God. This is a repeat of last week. It isn't rule keeping that proves that you're a mature Christian. It is Christ alone. It's Christ alone who brings us into fellowship with God. And it is Christ alone who strengthens our faith. And it is Christ alone who begins to become more visible in us as we abide in him. And look at verse 19. The problem that Paul observes within this church is that these false teachers were not holding fast to what he calls the head. Jesus Christ, remember, he's the head of the church. They weren't holding fast to Christ from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Remember remember how Paul's aim a few weeks ago was to present everyone in the church mature in Christ? That was his goal. That's what a faithful ministry does. And his point here is that all of that growth, all of that Christian maturity is in Christ. It's found in him and it comes from him. So the false teachers are not holding fast to Christ. They're looking to something else. They're looking to what Paul calls a man-made religion, a self-made religion, man-made righteousness. And they think that, their own invention, is the picture of Christian maturity. They're striving and striving, and striving for a holiness that doesn't come from their union with Christ. They're they're striving for a, a holiness that comes from something else that they've invented, from their own imagination. I hope you see the problem here. Last week, we learned that Christ has already accomplished so much for us. He's already accomplished the cutting off of our flesh. The power that the flesh has over us has been nailed to the cross. And the false teachers are saying, Christ hasn't actually accomplished that. Therefore, we need to add to his work. We need to create our own form of holiness. In church, that is the essence of what we call legalism. Have you heard that phrase before? Legalism? Legalism is this, I'll give you a quick definition. It is the belief that our standing before God is based on our performance. Legalism is the belief that our standing before God Himself is based on our performance. It's what Paul calls this self made religion in verse 23. It has the appearance of wisdom, it looks holy. It gives the impression to others that this person is ultra-spiritual or they're a really strong Christian because they're doing these things that most of us would find difficult to do. And they're avoiding things that most of us find difficult to avoid. But they're doing that for their own righteousness. Paul says these rules that they're creating to give themselves this appearance... They are really of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, that power we're to see is only found in the cross of Christ. Listen, the gospel frees us from pretending. We don't have to pretend to be holy in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that we could never achieve the real holiness that that God has himself, but God has forgiven us of this. He knows we can't make it there. And so now we live not in our own holiness, but in Christ Jesus' holiness. And that's freeing. That should be freeing to you. The gospel frees us to live in Christ. And many of us hear that because we've heard it for decades. And we know that it's true. But by our lives, if someone were to look at our lives and listen to us and examine our hearts, we would see that we are actually denying that truth in much of what we do when we try and white-knuckle our way to holiness by our own effort, we are denying the freedom that Christ has given us. And you know what? What I want us to see this morning is that each one of us does this in more ways than we could ever imagine. So here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. You've seen Paul's point from Scripture. It's very simple. Christ has accomplished everything. He's accomplished even your holiness. And next week we'll see more about what holiness in Christ looks like. But this week, what we're going to do with the rest of our time, we're just going to examine how pervasive legalism really is in our own lives. Each one of us. None of us, probably, none of us would say, oh yeah, I'm a total legalist. We wouldn't make that claim. None of would say, I believe I am responsible for my own salvation and holiness and righteousness before God. I hope you wouldn't say that. But all of us, in one way or another, we actually live like our standing before God is at the very least influenced. Maybe we get a little bit closer to there by our own performance. And when we do that, when we live like that, church, we deny the gospel. We deny the very power of the cross. And here's where, that, here's where that comes from. We all have this tendency. None of us is, gets by on this one. Here's where that tendency comes from. Brian Chapel puts it this way. He says, our desire to please God combined with the human bent to prove our acceptance by comparison with and control of others makes us feel factories of human legislation. I love how he puts that. So so our desire to please God, that's a good desire, isn't it? But when we combine that good desire with this, this vestige of the flesh, this pride that indwells us, here's what happens. Because our pride doesn't ever want to look bad. It doesn't allow us to compare ourselves to God and see his holiness and our sin and our need for the cross of Christ so our pride doesn't do that does it our pride is fed by these little victories these little victories pride compel- compels us to compel compare rather pride compels us to compare ourselves to others and then we seek to prove our acceptance before God by those comparisons and by our desire to control others because we're not trusting that it is in Christ that we are fully accepted before God. So I want to share with you 10 areas where we are prone to do this. We could really do this all day long because we, are, we will complete a list of 10,000 and then we will invent a new way to do this. We'll take pride in our list of 10,000 ways that we are prideful. But I'm going to limit it to 10 this morning for your mercy. If one of these doesn't apply to you, no worries. The next one will. All right? So, So when one of these pricks your heart, here's what I want you to do. Put a little check by it or underline it or circle it in your notes. And then I want you to revisit that area that's been exposed in your heart later on today, and I want you to pray something like this. Father, by your grace, you have shown me where I am not trusting in the power of the cross and I'm not clinging to Christ. Forgive me for this sin. By your spirit, help me to believe that I am really and truly complete in Christ. See the idea there? When we deny the power of the cross, we're in sin, we ask for forgiveness, and we ask that God by His Spirit would help us to cling to Christ. One last thing before we get into these. This is important. Fight the urge when you hear one of these to say, oh, so-and-so really needs to hear this one, okay? (laughs) They are not for so-and-so, they're for you and me. You're here. God has brought you here, each one of us here. And He's done that to reveal to us where we are not fully trusting in Christ for our righteousness, okay? So number one, the first area where we're prone to do this is our work ethic. Us waspy types especially struggle with this one. It goes something like this. I'm a hard worker, and I believe that because of my hard work, God will reward me. All right, so here's the test for this one. If you have ever felt angry and mumbled, get a job under your breath when you walked by a homeless person, this may be an area where you believe your way of of grinding it out and pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps living is more acceptable to God than another person. So I want you to pause And think for a moment, Christian. Whose work has brought us into acceptance before God? Jesus' work, not ours. Our acceptance before God is in Christ. We can't improve on that. We can't take away from that. And all we can do is abide in Christ, so cling to Christ. Not your work ethic. And by clinging to Christ for your acceptance before God what will happen? You will be given a humility that you've never known before, and you will be given a compassion for others that only comes from Jesus Christ. Number two, your family values. Some of us have kids that are especially well-behaved or smart or successful. Some of us don't. (laughs) Or kids for whom the Holy Spirit has given new life to, has caused to be born again. Now what this can do in us, because of our pride, is provoke us to think that we are more righteous than someone else whose kids aren't well behaved or successful or smart. Or even sometimes, we we can begin to think that because our kids are Christians and someone else's kids aren't Christians, that we did something better. We did something more acceptable to God than those people. Like we earned our kids' salvation. But who saved us? Jesus did. And who saved our kids? Jesus did. So who is more acceptable to God? Who is the only one acceptable to God? Jesus is. Our acceptance before God is only in Christ. So if your pride is in your kids or your values as a family, don't hold on to that. Let it go and hold fast to Christ, not your family values. Number three, sound theology. Here's how this one goes. I have good theology. Therefore, God prefers me over people who don't have good theology. This probably is not a hobgoblin to many new Christians, but it will be to those of us who have been in the faith for a long time and have studied and have poured over books and scripture and love church history and love good preaching. This is what baffles me about this one because I'm prone to this one. I'm actually often very guilty of this one. And I have to repent of this one frequently. You see, contrary even to my own theology, even when my theology teaches me that my acceptance before God is only found in Christ, my pride in knowing this and seeing this in Scripture, that pride can compel me to think that God accepts me more than people whose theology is is not as robust. And I can become angry and embittered and self-righteous So I have to be reminded, if theology is about knowing God and knowing the mind of God and his his attributes, who he is, who has revealed that to me? The Spirit. Only the Spirit. The Spirit reveals this to us through his word. We don't discover the nature and character of God on our own. So how can I compare myself to anyone else when it was the Spirit and the Word that's responsible for anything that I've received. We have nothing, Christian. We have nothing that has not been given to us. And so we have nothing to boast about but Christ himself. Number four, intellect. Did you know that even the minds that God has given us can become a source of comparing ourselves to others and finding ourselves more righteous than they are. It goes something along these lines. I read the paper. I read good books. I went to a good college. I'm constantly working to sharpen my mind and grow my vocabulary and become more culturally aware than other people. So I'm obviously better than they are. And the unspoken conclusion is this, therefore I am more acceptable before God than they are. But listen, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. If that is your stumbling block, memorize this passage. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Memorize the whole thing, and you'll see how weak your intellect is when you struggle through that passage, all right? Number five, our schedules. A self-righteous scheduler can be described like this. I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. What's the idea here? You look at someone else whose life is all chaotic and they're stretched thin for time and they're running hither and thither. and you, you look at your little planner and all its color-coded elegance and you pat yourself on the back and you look up to heaven and you say, God, I thank you that I am not like these other women. Disorganized, bleary-eyed, tired, and unable to make Wednesday night service and Sunday school, and all the extra Bible studies that I have time to go to. I have the most perfect schedule and can fit in anything and anyone because of my handy-dandy notebook. It's a Blue's Clues reference. And my skillful organization. And in our pride, we forget that God created time and that our lives are like a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. And we forget that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So to you, I'd say, hold fast to Christ, the word. He is the eternal one who makes every moment even remotely meaningful in your life. Number six. Service. This is the sort of anti-schedule person. This person looks like the scheduler and looks down on them. This person's pride isn't in their schedule, it's in their ability to flex and drop everything to serve everyone else. This is the person who looks at all the things that need to be done in the church or at home or where they work and they take on themselves as many things as possible. And then they take pride and the fact that they're serving more than everyone else. Their motto is, the last shall be first. And so they go ahead and they smugly take that first place trophy, even before the race is finished. And in their heart, they might not say this, but in their heart, they say, boy, if only everyone were as servy a servant as me. Only... Listen, it's it's Christ himself who was our suffering servant, isn't it? Our service is meaningless if Christ has not first served the Father in redeeming for himself his people. Our service is worthless if we haven't been redeemed and given the Spirit. We love only because he first loved us. We have no other claim. We serve only because of his spirit working in us, not because of our own goodness. For we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should just walk in them. Number seven, politics. Should I just step down now? (laughs) Those of us who believe That a Christian would only vote Republican or a Christian would only vote Democrat or Green Party or Independent or Libertarian or whatever we're coming up with these days. If that's your understanding of Christianity, we are probably guilty of seeking to add to Christ's work to find acceptance before God. All the while, we're forgetting that we don't even belong to the kingdoms of this world. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. We are to live here in this world as his ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ. We've been transferred, as we saw in Colossians 1, delivered out of the domain of darkness, where power is defined by who sits in the Oval Office or who fills the Supreme Court benches or who fills the halls of Congress. We don't live there anymore. We live in Christ's kingdom. That's where our citizenship is. So our definition of power should be different than the world's definition of power. Because we don't belong to the world. We understand that our king reigns over his kingdom. And our only citizenship there is by his own invitation and bringing us in. And we know and we trust that his reign will soon be known over all the earth. So our allegiance is to him. Not a political party. Our acceptance before God is in Christ himself. Not in whom we think Christ would vote for. Number eight. Lifestyle. Many of us are familiar with with the ways that we as Christians in America have historically tried to curb the temptations of the flesh with lifestyle rules. No alcohol, no tobacco, no dancing, no gambling. You've got to dress like a businessman if you're a man, and you've got to look feminine if you're a woman. The bigger the flower print on your dress, the better. Your hair can only be yay short if you're a woman, and it can only be yay long if you're a man. And these types of rules... I didn't start with these because I wanted to show you all the other ways that we do this. But these are very familiar to us. And these are actually very close in proximity to what the Colossian false teachers were putting on to the Colossian church. The idea is that Christian maturity is defined by your ability to keep the code. Follow the rules. And look like a particular idealized version of, of what someone else thinks a Christian looks like. And it's not just us who does this, okay? I'm not picking on Del Cero. I'm not picking on American Christians. People all over the world do this. Christians everywhere. I read a story this week about how a pastor from Greece once visited visited an evangelical church in America. And many of the folks in the church were absolutely shocked that this pastor had wine with dinner. And they thought, how is it possible that this man can call himself a Christian and drink wine? Meanwhile, this pastor was shocked to see how many of the women in this church wore makeup. And he thought, how can someone who calls himself a Christian wear makeup? Because where he came from, only the street women wore makeup. Do you see how we both do this, how we're prone to this? We all create rules based on what we think Christian maturity should look like. But just because we all do it does not at all make it acceptable. It is an absolute denial of the power of the cross to free us from sin. It's claiming Jesus' work wasn't enough. I've got to cling to I've got to build up on top of his work with my rules in order to be holy before God my neighbor a few weeks ago on a really hot Sunday a really hot Sunday invited my family over to swim in his pool they live right next door and he, kn- he knows I'm a baptist pastor and he paused right after his, his invitation and he said I know you're baptist and I know that it's Sunday, so I only, I only want you to come over if you're okay with it. As if swimming on a Sunday would destroy my conscience. <laughs> for some reason, for some reason all my neighbor knows about Baptists is that we're rule keepers. Such, such rule keepers that e- even, even he, Wanted to be sensitive to not offend me by inviting my family to swim. He didn't know. He didn't know us for our commitment to Christ or our gospel message. He knows us for our rule keeping, our strictness, our asceticism, our Disney protests, our teetotaling, our politics. Because of our silence on the things that really count, like being saved by grace, and our outspokenness on all sorts of things, my neighbor thinks that Baptists are basically like Mormons without the weird underwear. <laughs> so how, how did this happen? Don Carson is, is, a, is a, a teacher that I admire, and he, he says this happened Because of this generational thing that occurred. He says that the first generation accepts the gospel. And then lives out their lives according to their gospel convictions. That's a good thing. That's what we're called to in scripture. And then the next generation, they assume the gospel. And they focus more on those lifestyle convictions. And then the next generation who goes to church with them, because they were not taught the gospel, they forget the gospel entirely, and, and their religion becomes those lifestyle convictions. And so they have nothing, nothing but a bunch of powerless rules to pass on to their kids. And people wonder, Why so many in my generation have abandoned the faith. Maybe they were not taught the faith to begin with. Because of our pride, church, because of our pride, our faith can very quickly become about what we stand against and about the rules that define the Christian life and how we, by our own fortitude, if we'll only try harder, can can obey those rules. And then we think that makes us more acceptable to God. But what is Paul's message here for the Colossians? Read verses 8 through 13 again when you get home. Read what we've been studying. The flesh no longer has power over us. Christ has crucified it. Look at verse 21. We don't have to use laws and rules and regulations according to our own imaginations, according to human precepts and teachings to keep the flesh in check. Our flesh has been crucified. It has been cut off. It's hanging on the cross. So we have to constantly remind ourselves of this full gospel. Because the Christian life isn't about submitting to rules in order to be more accepted by God. The Christian life is about submitting to our Savior, abiding in Christ, holding fast to Christ because only he is accepted by God. And when we are in union with Christ, only then are we accepted by God. Number eight, mercy. Nine. Okay, nine, thank you. Number nine, mercy. Mercy. Now at the other end of the legalist spectrum, so on the one end you have the lifestyle rules. At the other end, and many people don't believe it's on the same spectrum, but it really is. On the other end is what I call mercy legalism. Many people who reject the fundamentalist idea of legalism begin to think, I'll show them. I'll drink and smoke and dance as much as I want. Being a Christian isn't about being sober, it's about showing Mercy, And so what do they begin to do? Their legalism goes towards showing mercy to the poor and the disadvantaged and thinking this is what all mature Christians should be doing. All they've done is create new and different rules. The rules are not about your lifestyle so much as they are about how merciful and tolerant and accepting you are. The belief For them, is that you are more accepted by God if you fight for the poor or the homeless or the downcast or the minorities or the oppressed or the environment. And those who don't see these things the way that mercy legalists do, they are lesser Christians. They're not as strong, they're not as mature. But it's still legalism, it's just more popular. It's more socially aware and socially acceptable. But the underlying belief is still this. My acceptance before God depends on my performance. Mercy legalism, it may be a a reaction against the legalism that these folks grew up with, but it's not a reaction towards the gospel. It's not a reaction towards Christ and his sufficiency all it is is a pendulum swing onto the other side of the spectrum it's it's towards a different type of works righteousness and it has no more power to save cling to Christ your acceptance before God is only in Christ not your ability to show mercy and number 10 tradition 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 is a touchy thing isn't it? There are some traditions that we have as Christians that are good. they keep us grounded. One author says this: that tradition is the living faith of the dead. People that have gone before us and have sacrificed and given and studied and read and suffered and lived out their lives in Christ. they pass on to us traditions they are our Examples. They are that cloud of witnesses. We hold the Bible up as the Word of God. Totally sufficient for all things that have to do with life and faith. You know what that is? That's a tradition. I I read the Nicene Creed. We all read it together a few weeks ago. That is an old tradition, it is the living faith of the dead. As Southern Baptists, we have a a tradition of giving a great deal of our tithes and offerings to missions, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard it and who have no access to it. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a tradition. It's a tradition that I hope continues in Baptist churches all the way until Christ returns. See, tradition itself is not inherently evil. A style of preaching can become a tradition. Singing is a tradition. Reading scripture in church, gathered together on a Sunday, that's a tradition. Communion with little crackers and the little cups, that's a tradition. These aren't bad things. Baptism, the way we do it in the tank, that's a tradition. Many of our traditions are the living legacies of, living examples of the faithfulness of those who have gone before us. But tradition, church, listen, tradition can become a source of pride. We can seek to find our righteousness in our traditions. It can become the focus of our faith. It can become something that we substitute for Jesus himself. As our means of acceptance before God. The right way of doing church. The right way of being a Christian. The same man who said tradition is the living faith of the dead said this. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See when our practices become our faith. When our practices and our insistence on Pianos and organs are really just as dangerous when our insistence on drums or electric guitars or the way we've always done things or the way another church is doing things becomes what we cling to rather than Christ himself, then that should be a very stern warning for us. We should see that. And we should see that we're seeking to let man-made traditions become who we are, become our identity in our source of Christian maturity rather than Jesus Christ himself. Are you starting to see this? Are you starting to see all of the ways that our sinful, prideful hearts look for acceptance before God outside of Jesus Christ himself? Are you starting to see just how easy it is to add to Christ's work to add to Christ's work through our efforts, through our human means. Even though there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even though the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, even though God has done what the law rules weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Even though that's true, church, and we know what's true from Romans, we act like it's not sometimes. We still, I still, make up laws that I can follow and obey and enforce on others in order to compare myself to them so that I can say I'm that much closer to God than they are. But Jesus Christ, he is the one who is in fellowship with God. Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly obeyed the law and for whom there is no distinction between God's holiness and his. Jesus Christ is the one who has made a way for us to be in fellowship with God. Himself. He is the way. Not his teachings. Him. Jesus. We can't claim any of those things that he has a claim to. All we can claim is Jesus himself. And all we can do is hold fast to Christ by his spirit. And as we hold fast to him, The Spirit through us begins to more clearly reveal Christ in us to others. And that's what chapter 3 is about. And I can't wait to get there next week with you. Would you pray with me?